This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Designed specifically for venture-backed startups, Brex is the perfect corporate card for fast-growing companies. Head to brex.com and sign up with the promo TFR to get waived card fees for life. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back to TFR for a very enlightening installment. Today we discuss startups creating developer platforms with Ethan Kurzweil of Bessemer Venture Partners. Ethan's father, Ray Kurzweil, may be the foremost authority on artificial intelligence, and it's pretty clear that Ethan has established himself as a leading mind in consumer tech and particularly developer platforms. It's a big thrill to have him on the program today, and special thanks to Justin Label of Interloop Capital for making the connect. Okay, in part one of this interview, we will discuss what it means for a startup to have a developer platform focus, why Ethan has chosen to focus in this area, the history of developer platforms over the past couple decades, the different types of developer platforms, Examples of companies that have built platforms for developers. An example or two of companies that have developerized the enterprise, giving non-coders powerful tools. And we'll finish up part one by getting Ethan's insight on how dev platform businesses can be marketed like consumer startups, but make money like enterprise companies. Hope you enjoy this segment of the interview with Ethan Kurzweil of Bessemer Venture Partners. Here's part one. Today, Ethan Kurzweil joins us from Menlo Park, California. Ethan is a partner at Bessemer Venture Partners, where he focuses on investments in consumer technologies and developer platforms. And Ethan has invested in companies including Twitch, Periscope, Dropcam, Twilio, SendGrid, Intercom, and many more. Ethan, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Nick. Good to be with you. Actually joining you from San Francisco. Oh, okay. You're in San Francisco. Yes, up in San Francisco today. Got it. Okay. Well, today we're talking about developer platforms and dev-focused companies. But to start off, can you kind of walk us through your story and how you became involved in venture? Yeah, absolutely. I actually pitched Bessemer on a company back in uh, early 2008, a company idea, I should say. I was rolling off. um, I was involved with Linden Lab, which was the company behind Second Life back when they had their heyday in uh, uh, 2007, 2008. And uh, had an idea for a concept that involved some of the virtual world stuff I was working on at Linden. Pitched an investor at Bessemer, David Cowan. Um, and he talked me out of that idea pretty quickly and talked me into becoming a uh, uh, venture capital associate. And I joined Bessemer eight years ago. And the rest is sort of history. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've read the bio and um, uh, Justin Label, who is courteous enough to introduce us, kind of gave me a a good profile on what you do, but would you be willing to kind of talk through your focus areas and, and what you're focused on at Bessemer? Sure, absolutely. I, I sort of have two split personalities as it relates to my world at Bessemer. Um, one, as you said, is consumer technology, specifically video. Looked at a lot of video concepts and we continue to look at this tremendous amount of 
consumer viewing attention moving from television to online video and what does that mean? What are the next platforms that are going to be created there? Um, and so that you know, has led me to investments like Twitch and Periscope that you mentioned and some others. Um, that's one half of my world. And then I think specific to what we're going to be talking about for the rest of the hour is developer platforms and companies that take advantage of the developer as the buying agent or developer-like activities in the enterprise that allows companies to sell pretty efficiently to technical people or business users that, re- that obviate the need for technical people and be able to provide specialized skill sets like communication, security, email delivery, things like that. Yeah, and on that point, can you talk a little more about what it means for a startup to have a developer platform focus? Sure. I, I, think, um, I think it's a specific type of company that's sort of created from the beginning. There may be some that companies that have platform elements to them, you know, like a Facebook that's a consumer company but has a, has a platform that they market. But as it relates to developer platforms, we think about companies that are, have that in their DNA, companies like Twilio, SendGrid, uh, NPM, GitHub, Stripe, that where their buying agent, the person that's going to adopt the technology, and in most cases actually make the purchasing decision or at least advise strongly on the purchasing decision, is a developer or a technical person. And so at Twilio, the company has enormous love among the developer communities because it makes communications technologies very easy to use and deploy. You call an API, you provision that API on your own on their website, put in a credit card, and you're ready to go and test sending, you know, um, being able to receive voice calls or sending voice calls or text messages or things like that. So being a developer platform really involves having a product that can be fully commercialized through a developer adopting it. Um, there are other types of developer co- platforms, companies that, like Intercom, where sometimes the user is not a developer, but it would have required in the past developers to code specific functionality for their users, and that's replaced by a platform like Intercom or um, you know Zapier allows you to stitch together various functionality into your application that would have required developers to 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 code in the past, and so those are both sub-themes of developer platforms that we get very excited about. And just scanning through your background here, I'm, I'm seeing a diverse range of experiences. Um, how did you decide to choose, or how have you chosen to focus on this area specifically? Yeah, it, 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 I'd love to say it was sort of perfectly pre-planned from the beginning. <laughs> I, you know, the, I, I can't claim that kind of wisdom, unfortunately, but I, um, I, you know, a couple of things happened. You know, I'm not a developer myself, but I've always you know, had an appreciation for developers and am technical enough that I sort of understand code, but haven't worked as a developer commercially before. Um, and so I had this sort of appreciation for the potential drudgery of a developer's day and how that could be made better. And at the same time, started realizing that developers were impacting more and more of our world. You know, the I'm not the only person to have noticed that. Obviously, software is becoming far more and more important outside of just the software industry. More things are programmable today. And then I met Jeff Lawson very early on, the CEO of Twilio, early in my venture career. And he was just getting started, and he had this this vision that resonated a lot. And so we uh, invested in his seed round. Later, led some of his subsequent rounds, his, his um, you know series B, C, and D. And I got to appreciate his philosophy and apply it you know, even more broadly than just communications tech, which is what 
Twilio is about. And we saw lots of other companies that potentially benefit from that same, that same type of thinking. And so, yeah, I think it's sort of having an appreciation for the developer, but also understanding which potential developer products are commercializable and have big markets behind them was what made me excited about taking on that area. Are there positions within the stack or are there sort of horizontal applications within the developer world that you focus on or are you uh, sort of stack and application agnostic when it comes to uh, to platforms? Yeah, we're, we're, we have no religion around um, particular stacks, particular programming languages or anything like that. You know, I mean, a wacky idea like enabling C-sharp of developers to, to develop mobile apps became Xamarin, and that's a, you know, a, a big a relative success story within the developer platform world. So we don't have a particular religion around that. Uh, we recently backed NPM, which grew out of the Node community's need for package management because people are sharing packages quite broadly in a very open source and public way. And it didn't take much for the broader JavaScript community to realize that was a better way to do it. And then NPM became broader than just Node packages, and now is where you know, all of mainstream Java packages are stored. So there's no religion around that. I think we do have what we call our commandments for building a developer business. And those are things like... Uh, we want a product that can scale up with the underlying usage of the application. As more people, as Intercom's customers get bigger, they end up using Intercom more, paying Intercom more money. Same is true for Twilio. As a company like Uber adopts Twilio as their core way to communicate between drivers and, and, um, and riders, they end up using Twilio more and more. So we like something that can get built into a stack and that grows with a customer. But we don't have any religion as far as how they do that. Well, yeah, I do want to get into some of these commandments, uh, certainly later in this discussion. Uh, right. But just just to back up here, can you give us a sort of brief history on developer platforms and the developer environment over the past couple decades? Sure. I mean, I think traditionally it was seen as not a very good place to invest, right? Because <laughs> developers were seen as not particularly sophisticated and not certainly not buyers of enterprise and really where you get the big money is not selling to other startup companies is sort of the knock on the um, you know the knock on the industry if, the, if there was one right. um, it was you know it's that you're just selling to other startups really where the big money is is in enterprises is actually you know bigger enterprises or companies that start out as startups like uber and then you know grow to become big and so the knock has traditionally been that developers don't make buying decisions in the enterprise it's the IT folks that are the gatekeepers to that. And my response to that is that that's outmoded thinking that actually developers are becoming more and more influential as the world gets more programmable. Developers are now running big companies. Facebook is run by a developer. Google is run by a developer. Yahoo, maybe not the best example these days, but they're run by a developer, <laughs> yeah. right? Marissa is a developer. Right. And, and there's another dozen examples of that. Developers are more influential in the enterprise they're the ones that are um, choosing which technology to adopt, not some IT person telling them what technology they have to adopt. Um, and so that's the sort of core shift that I think changed the prior view of developers where you had sort of more boring old school companies like Borland Software and others that did sell you know, compilers and developer tools like that to broad, bigger platforms like Stripe, like Twilio, like GitHub, which fosters this developer community around sharing open source code. Um, 
that those can be profitable businesses with real buying power behind them. And I think that's the shift, and that's, um, that's, that, that's what makes this a particularly good time to look at developer platforms, in my view. When did you see this shift start to, to materialize? <clears throat> is this like a, a phenomenon of the last decade, or is this just in the last few years? 30 years ago, I predicted it. No, <laughs> just, just kidding. I'd love to be able to say that. Um, I, you know, I think um, I would love to say that I had this insight at the time we were funding Twilio. I think it was sort of what, what, what's more accurate is that we, we felt like the pitch resonated there and then came to appreciate that it was much broader than that as we yeah, really right. dug into it. Um, and so it's really, you know, over the years, 2008, 2009, 2010, we were sort of formulating it. I think I first put down... We first put down on paper something in 2011, presented internally kind of what we call a roadmap for it, and kind of refined our thesis, came up with these commandments for which companies we think were going to be, um, uh, you know, have, have the biggest commercial opportunities and, and how, we, how we thought the industry would play out as far as, you know, w- what, what were good products to sell to developers and what would be more challenging to build a b- big business on. So it was sort of in those, those years that we were uh, refining this thesis that I've, that I've been, uh, been talking to now. So, Ethan, how do you categorize and think about different types of developer platforms? Yeah, I think there's really two types that I outlined a little bit at the outset. There's the company that sells to a developer. It's sold to a technical person. Uh, and they are directly calling an API. They're installing an SDK in their app. They are coding to some particular spec that this platform enables, like a Xamarin, like a Twilio. And then there's the, the company that the developers are involved with, but it helps business people be more effective by not requiring a lot of development time. That's companies like Intercom, like Atlassian, like New Relic, where they are in and around developers, and developers use those products too, but they enable the broader business user to be more effective. Analytics tools, application monitoring tools, team effectiveness tools like what Atlassian sells. Intercom helps with communication between businesses and their customers. So those are the, really the two, the two types that, that we see. And there's, there's hybrids. There's companies that have some elements of both. GitHub may be an example of that. Um, and there may be companies that, that aren't, that are strictly speaking, hard to classify, but also take advantage of this trend. But most of them fall in one of those two buckets. Is there a certain adoption model that you're looking for? Well, what's sort really of, nice... Oh, sorry, Nick. No, no, go ahead. But what's really nice about developer platforms, specifically the first type, is that you don't have to sell them out of the gate. You, 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 can, you can market them like a consumer product. Right. Through social media, through through content marketing, through blogging, through uh, other uh, internet marketing techniques, you can reach developers. Developers tend to be a noisy bunch. They, they in a good way, well, a good way and a bad way, if they like your technology, they do tend to talk about it. I mean, <laughs> yeah. search Twitter for Stripe, Twilio, all the GitHub. You'll get pros and cons about every uh, all of these platforms there. And the sure. ones that are have... Um, that have legs, you'll hear a lot about. Um, you know, SignalConf is going on right now, Twilio's conference, and it's like a trending topic here in San Francisco. It's like a conference for a thousand people, but clearly it's getting amplified by the amount of social media activity around that. So what's nice about the adoption model is they can be very self-service, like signing up for a, you know, a, a Uber or something. You can um, Developers can sign up, start sending text messages, connecting sockets, accepting payments, taking care of their secure ID. You know, we have a company called Auth0 that 
will take care of your entire authentic- authentication system. And it's very easily provisioned over the web. And then you, you, know, you could theoretically get to even some large scale without a sales interaction at all. And a lot of, a lot of these companies, you know, a lot of SendGrid and Twilio's customers, and I assume Stripes too, don't end up communicating with a salesperson until you know, they've been using the product for many months or years even. Got it. So most of these approaches are going to get a critical mass of users you know, using the platform, which merits the enterprise to take a closer look at monetizing with the enterprise and a sales at that point after a certain amount of usage and, and users have, yeah, the, have gotten on the platform? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, uh, you can, as the developer business, you can see how the developer platform is being used and when a sales interaction makes sense. I mean, there may be usually the first bill of any customer usually ends up being you know a couple bucks when they're just sort of testing something out or considering using a platform they may they may trunk some small portion of their traffic or test it in a product that hasn't launched yet something like that where they can kind of see whether this is a platform that they want to adopt into their technology stack and then as the underlying service scale starts getting used or as they start integrating this technology more into whatever it is that's being used, um, you, you start to scale the volume and then it, it, a sales interaction may be warranted or it may, it may not be necessary. May, you know, they may just, there, there may be an, a, an open priced model. I know Atlassian doesn't have salespeople. They just, there's a, there's a pricing framework and, and they have support and customer success people and you pay them what you owe them. <laughs> and, that's, yeah. and that's how it works. Um, you know, th- there are different approaches there, especially when you get into security and other things that do involve you know, compliance and audits and things like that. But generally speaking, you don't need a lot of heavy upfront work before a developer is going to adopt something. You, know, you can't really sell to a developer anyway. They're going to use the technology that's best. It's very hard to sort of mandate something from on high because developers now see uh, are empowered to pick their own tools. And so this model works best for them too. So I found this statement on the website, and I'm going to read it back to you now. It's, quote, developerizing the enterprise by giving business users powerful tools without requiring the ability to code. Uh, You talked about this a bit before, but can you give us an example of one or two companies that have done this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the the best example is a company like Intercom. Um, You know, there's Optimizely is another good one where... In the past, you know, optimizely helps you do A/B testing online. In the past, you would have really needed a developer involved in that, in coding the test and figuring out what what traffic is going to go to which place. Optimizely, you can do all that in a very user friendly way. Move things around, change text, create the experiments that you want to create, and see the results right in the in the uh, in the application. Intercom, same thing. If you wanted to do the kind of segmentation analysis and segmentation targeting that they allow, you know, this when users fall off of this particular page, I want to talk to them, I want to make sure they understood that the button is there, et cetera. You would have had to involve developers pretty intimately in that work. With Intercom, you set that all up in their um, in their platform, in their basically application, and you can use it directly. So it extends the power of development and sort of what we call democratizes development so that business users have access to that same type of rich functionality that in the past would have required code. And so the best way we could say it was democratizing development or developer, developerizing the enterprises, our term for it. 
may not be the <laughs> catchiest <laughs> of all time, but that's kind of the best we, best we could uh, I like it. <laughs> there we go. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Your startup is going to change the world, and the right corporate card will get you there even faster. The Brex corporate card for startups offers 10 to 20 times higher limits than traditional corporate cards, automated expense tools, and huge rewards like four times points back on travel, three times back on restaurants, and two times back on recurring SaaS spend. And all with no personal guarantee. Sign up at brex.com and get waived card fees for life with the code TFR. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Assure. For over three years, Newstack has been raising capital on a deal-by-deal basis, allowing individual investors to select each startup investment. Assure is the company behind the scenes that powers this process. When we have 10, 20, or 30 angels investing in a startup, we can't put all those folks directly on the startup's cap table. So those investors are rolled into a special purpose vehicle that occupies just one line item on the cap table. And Assure handles all ongoing fees, finances, and K-1s for us. We pay a one-time upfront fee and avoid all the required yearly admin filings and bills. If you run an angel group or you would like your LPs to invest in deal-by-deal sidecars, go to assure.co slash TFR for 20% off your first SPV. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company, or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. You know, the the other thing I came across is Bessmer sort of talking about how uh, these platforms can be marketed like consumer startups, but make money like enterprise companies. Uh, I think you you sort of teased out some of the components of this before, but could you expand on on how this occurs? Yeah, absolutely. So it's so it's it's nice because your your cost of customer acquisition is low like a consumer company or can be low like a consumer company. There's a really low hurdle to adoption. Uh, it's organic usage drives the business in that once it's adopted, the usage of the underlying product grows with uh, the, the revenue to that customer grows with the usage of the underlying product. And you really need marketing, not sales. And social media can be an accelerant to that. So you, you end up with low customer acquisition. But these are major products that are adopted for things like security, payments, communications, you know, real-time messaging, things that have real dollars behind them in some cases. And um, so the LTV, the, lo- the, the lifetime value of customers that you get in through this very lightweight approach can be quite big. And so that's why we say that. We say that you know, it can be marketed like consumer startups, but have the kind of, make the kind of money that you know, real enterprise companies get. Because you, you look at the types of things that developers are having control over and they're, they're real big ticket items on an enterprise's budget and something that enterprises are used to spending money for and will continue to do that. It's just um, now a developer making those decisions and making, uh, figuring out what technology to adopt. I'd imagine the, the virality component in this market is like on steroids because, you know, you get some of these platforms into the developer communities and I, I would just expect that they would spread around like wildfire if they're useful. Absolutely. I mean, that is a huge part of this. Two things. Virality is huge. So there's organic, there's both organic adoption and viral adoption. 
And especially in some cases where you can actually kind of see how something is done. You know, you go through a checkout flow on Stripe and see that it's nice and want to adopt something else in your own app. There, there is some just sort of organic kind of word of mouth or just organic discovery in the wild that happens there. But also you have, in the best cases, tremendous net negative churn because things get adopted and then customers end up liking it if, if it's a good platform, the best ones. And they start to grow their re- they start to grow their revenue with those companies. They start to do more business just as their products grow, and they they want to do more. You know, the Uber, the Lyft cases where they're connecting customers and riders. As more people take rides, they end up spending more money. So you've got both those things are very strong elements of this business model if done well. Would AWS be like a classic example of a developer platform? AWS is one of the best in that. Um, very easy to provision a server. I mean, not as easy. It, it was easy for the time. They've, they've got some catching up to do now to other folks like DigitalOcean that have made it even easier. But relatively easy and go on. And we could provision a server right as we're talking now and adopt some of their platform as a service offerings as well. Put in a credit card, get going. And um, as you use more computing capacity and storage and other elements that they bill for, you end up, your bill ends up going up with AWS. So they are one of the, one of the best developer platforms out there with, you know, I forget, I forget the latest number of billions of dollars in revenue. Marketed like consumer startups, but make money like enterprise, right? <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's exactly that. And then, you know, they, they do um, two and a half billion in revenue. I just got the statistic and that's per quarter. So it's actually on a $10 billion wow. re- revenue run rate, right? Um, it's just, just massive scale. And growing, but, right? Yeah. Growing, um, it's like more than 20% a quarter. Huge. Um, you know, and that, you know, that's at the fairly deep technical infrastructure layer and stuff that used to take all kinds of provisioning and work in the past. It's just made easy by, you know, some, some web hooks. So they're, they're definitely one of the better ones. Unfortunately, it's not a startup, so it's, it's not something we can, we can go and fund. But I guess <laughs> yeah. you can... Go invest in Amazon, and people that have done that have done fairly well. But it's not its uh, not sort of in our universe. Yeah, I almost didn't bring it up because it wasn't investable. But No, but it's, it's, a, it's a perfect example, and, and um, it's a perfect example of this trend. I, actually, I usually allude to it at some point. So in the past, you know, I've come across a, a bunch of your content, which is fantastic. But you talk about these eight commandments of building big developer-focused businesses. We're not going to be able to go super deep on each of these today. But could you walk through these eight commandments and and just touch on what each of them are and why they're important? Very fun to talk through the mechanics of dev platforms with Ethan. In part two, we go a bit deeper and discuss his eight commandments of building big developer-focused businesses, how he uses these commandments while evaluating a startup for investment how he sees the future of developer platforms, and what he sees on the horizon. Ethan's take on emerging foundational platforms, such as VR or the blockchain, and if he's looking out for developer platform opportunities therein. And finally, having recently discussed Ethan's father, Ray Kurzweil, in our AI interview with Nathan Banesh, we'll get Ethan's thoughts on early-stage investing in AI. Don't miss a very enlightening part two of the interview with Ethan, And if you're finding this discussion valuable and you know other investors or maybe a startup with a developer platform focus, 
feel free to send over a link to the interview. Okay, until next time, over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. We'll see you again soon.